Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and myself and Tom are here this afternoon to do our review episode of Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden, the newest hardback Wizards of the Coast adventure for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Tom, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing I'm doing good. I'm you know, it's starting to get cool outside, the crisp fall air, and I'm in the mood to play snowy adventure. So this is coming right at the right time. Absolutely. Uh, off the top, I want to thank Wizards of the Coast for sending us a copy or copies of this adventure for review. I was able to get one. Of, we got basically one of each cover, the limited edition and the regular. I got Tom the regular edition cover. That's how he was able to read it. Read it. I uh, I kept the uh, special cover because I like it more. It's a good special cover. I will say this. I, it is. Yeah. I still think Theros is the best. Yeah. This is top five. Okay, I for sure. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so if anyone is new to our review series, this is what we've been doing fairly recently and regularly for new products, not just D&D. We're going to break down the entire book in certain aspects. We'll get into spoilers to a point, uh, and then we're going to kind of give it a rating based on several different criteria as well as an overview or an overall rating. Uh, so with that out of the way, Tom, why don't you go ahead and kick things off? Okay, yes, like you said, Michael, this is the new adventure. So what is Rime of the Frost, I should say Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Maiden, because a good chunk is Icewind Dale. Well, let me interrupt you first right here. Do you know what rhyme in this context means? Song. No. I assumed it was song. What is it? Okay, so rhyme is actually, I'm going to the internet here, okay. Dr. Internet. is the it's, Rhyme is a frost formed on cold objects by the rapid freezing of water vapor in cloud or fog. Mm. Which is fitting for this adventure because we will learn quickly that the entire Icewind Dale is covered in this sort of gloomy frost. But there's also aspects of it where you have to find the song of the Frost Maiden, which is in fact a poem that has to be read. It's jumping way ahead. So I feel like rhyme was intentionally chosen because it rhymes with the word rhyme. Yeah, was it a pun? Was it intentional or did they just screw that up? I don't think we'll ever know. All right. <laughs> so no, that's, you know, interesting facts. Thank you, Michael. All right. Yes, so I, That's all I'm here for. I'm done. The rest of the show cool is Cool facts. I'll talk and you just, you know, interrupt with cool facts. Okay. All right. So Icewind Dale, you know, we all know it. The Driss books were, were, most of us are familiar with it. But Icewind Dale is the, the frozen north of the Forgotten Realms, just north of the Sword Coast, where let's just say 99.9% .9 of all Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition has taken place so far. So, but the Icewind Dale is now trapped in an unending night in winter. It's bitterly cold and dangerous, and this is all the doing of this, this titled Frost Maiden, Ariel. A lesser deity in the Forgotten Realms. Fun fact, it's actually Oril. Oril. That's a, that's a good point. According to the pronunciation guide. They put one in here. Good for that. Yeah, it's it's O-H-R-E-E-L. Yeah. Oril? I don't know. I've been clamoring for one and I didn't even read it. So I'm going to so it's yeah. Oril. All right. It's the, the bird lady on the front. Okay. So, but she's created this unending night in winter and... With it being unending, uh, the people are starting to, the people in the Icewind Dale, in the Ten Towns specifically, are starting to starve. And those who prefer the darkness are starting to make moves all over the region. So the book has three main story points, which, spoilers, people, 
if you don't plan on playing in this in the near future, then you're probably okay though, because you're gonna forget it all. It's a lot of stuff. All there's right, there's a lot. There's stuff. a lot of stuff. So, but there's three main stories here. It's part one. It, 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 well, the first story is about the uh, the Drugar, the uh, the the dark, the deep dwarves. They're creating. Uh, they want to. It's dark outside, and they're cool with that. So now they're going to try to take this place over. They're going to come above the surface. They're trying to create a mechanical dragon that's going to destroy everything. The second part is where you are going to need to confront Ariel and on her island to take her magical doodad to hopefully end the winter and also get into a hidden city that has been buried underneath of a glacier. Take her doodad or just kill her. Same thing. All right. Um, and then the, se- the final portion of this adventure is you're going to be working with a wizard from the Arcane Brotherhood to find a lost flying city and fight some weird things and take their loot. I feel like this last portion especially is going to give a lot of Planescape fans uh, get them real excited because it's very Planescape-y, very weird, and lots of very strange uh, Forgotten Realms lore all buried in here. So, yeah, a lot there's of There's been hints ever since 5th edition started that Planescape was probably coming. And it, while it still has not been officially announced, there was an announcement recently that there are three settings that are fan favorites that will be hitting the shelves probably within the next couple of years. And one of these things has been in a lot of other adventures, a lot of other campaign settings, there have been an inclusion of these black obelisks that are just included in the art. And they're not really given a lot of information about them and people have speculated that the fact that these obelisks keep showing up means something. In this book, we learned, that, in fact, that there is a connection to planar travel and these obelisks. But, but yeah, I want to talk mostly about the fact that this adventure is weird. Okay? It's weird beginning to end. There are some weird things about it. In particular, the entire thing is the rhyme of the Frost Maiden. The Frost Maiden is O'Real. And this spell that she is casting every night to make sure that the sun does not fully rise over the Ten Towns in Icewind Dale, and that sets the environment for this adventure. But the last part of this adventure, you get to after you take care of that, and there's really not a lot of foreshadowing that this next part happens. So it's it's kind of odd that to get to the end of the adventure, you complete what you think is the adventure yep. and then sort of unlock this other thing, Yeah, which I don't have a problem with, but it feels weird. It's definitely the Star World from Super Mario Brothers or Super Mario World. It's like, it's very, it doesn't, it doesn't fit a whole lot. And when we get there, we'll really dive into that. Um, but yeah, Michael, the, we can kind of talk about the overall structure here is that the, the first couple chapters of this book is a lot of information about the Icewind Dale and the Ten Towns. And it very much feels like a campaign guide. And then near the end, you get your actual, what they would consider the campaign. And I'll say right here that Ariel is not really featured a whole lot in this book, which was a little strange because I was really digging it. I, I, I liked her, I liked her, I liked her vibe. Um, I'm all into the weird, mysterious, eldritch stuff that they, um, they were kind of wizards was saying that you would get from this book. And she only shows up in chapter five. And that's it. I mean, obviously you can put her wherever you want, but officially in this book, She's at her island, and that's where she stays. And you only encounter her if you go there. Exactly. The, the adventure assumes that at some point you will go to her island, and 
face her in some way. And it, this has come up as well. I've seen some Twitter chatter. I'm going to say that chatter on Twitter. What is the thing on the cover? This figure with like an owl's head with horns. That is actually one of three forms that O'Reel takes. Um, if you decide to combat her, there are multiple forms that you must defeat. This is one of the three forms that she, she can take. In case you were wondering, because I didn't know what this thing was either. It looked really cool, but I had no idea what it was. Ah, so. gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's kind of the general structure of this. Uh, but the we we open up though with a we get an introduction where they kind of give you the layout. They give you. I definitely appreciate they have the adventure flow chart. They talk about the adventure flow. They talk about how to dissect it because they definitely tell you that you can take portions of this and use them. You can take what you want out of here, and then we get. Uh, a lot of something that a lot of people were really clamoring for, which is one of the things that fifth edition has really lacked was survival mechanics and uh, traveling. All right. And we get some wilderness survival stuff. So what these are, are rules specifically for the dungeon master to use as your players are venturing forth. Some of these things include avalanches. You know, your players are making deck saves to avoid avalanches. If they get buried, they may die. Blizzards, uh, you're, it's going to be super cold. You have frigid water. There's stu- they talk about stuff as, such as illumination, and even they go into detail such as fishing. So, you know, if you want to use some, do some things that aren't just fighting monsters, you can go ahead and fish for knucklehead trout. Uh, and I went through it and read through most of these, and I'm definitely struggling with them because they definitely feel tacked on. And I think that has to do with because although 5th edition says that it has these three core pillars, which are combat, exploration, and um, I can't remember the third one. It's like social stuff, so intrigue, something like along those lines. The exploration pillar is just so – it's lacking, especially – uh, compared to some other games, um, such as the Forbidden Lands, which, Michael, I think you want to talk about a comparison here. I mean, for example, these these rules deal so much with exhaustion, uh, which you're familiar with exhaustion in 5th edition. It's basically whenever you haven't taken a long rest uh, in such a long period of time, you start bad stuff starts happening to you, such as maybe your speed is half. You have disadvantage on all attacks. You have disadvantage on all saves. Oh, now your health is halved. Hit point maximum goes down, and now you're dead. All right? So it's very... But in order to heal from these exhaustions, you have to do long rests. So this stuff just kind of slows the game down and it just doesn't feel nuanced to me. So we, the last review that we did was for the bitter reach, which is for the forbidden lands game. And it's there's the similarities between these two adventures is kind of, I don't know, remarkable because we did not plan for this when we were organizing and scheduling. And I had said in the bitter reach game that, that surviving in the wilderness was a core part of that game. And it felt like, part of that game because you could very easily die from exposure in the bitter reach in fact you probably will have characters that die from exposure in the bitter reach and i said during that review that i didn't think that a DD version would feel the same not realizing at the time that that we would have a very good direct comparison having read through this and by no means an expert of the rules maybe fully understanding them i stand by that decision and, and that saying that that in this game the environment feels like it's just another obstacle to overcome. Yeah. And that with even the slightest bit of resource management, you will be able to do that. 
it might it might slow the game down. Like you said, you might have some exhaustion. You may be forced within game terms to take some quote unquote time to rest up. But at no point do I think these rules are actually going to cause a character to die. And that's not saying it should. I love D&D. It is still my favorite role-playing game that I've ever played, though I've not played all of them. I've played quite a few. Still, It's still my favorite. Probably always will be. But in D&D, and in particular 5th edition, it seems like your characters are, are bigger-than-life heroes. They are almost super heroic right off the bat. And they don't, it doesn't feel to me like this level of environment is really even still a challenge. It, it, it will create some interesting encounters, maybe if there's an avalanche. But even the avalanche rules, like I just kept thinking in Forbidden Lands, if you got hit with an avalanche, you would just die. And in fifth edition, if you get hit by an avalanche, it's just a, an encounter that you have to deal with. You yeah. might end up being buried, but you're you're really not going to be hurt it's, by it. You're going to be fine. Yeah, and how many aval? Yeah, it's one of the things for me was the wilderness of the Icewind Dale, and in in Dunge, the Dungeon and Dragons, the wilderness never seems interesting. All right, what is a strength of this book is the ten towns and its the other locations in this book and i would much rather have my players there and treat this game and adventure more like a platform video game where they say they look at the overland map and they say we want to go to this town and now boom they're in that town because that's where the interesting stuff is happening it's the interesting stuff to me is not them walking through the same environment and rolling strength checks to avoid avalanches the other thing i do want to say too is that they include overland travel like dog sled you can go a mile or so and then they include an overland map of the icewind dale but they don't include a distance scale i did not notice that there's no did you pull out the big the big map i did not pull it out because i'm one of those people that will not do that to my books now there is a part in each town it tells you which towns are the two that are closest to adjacent because it kind of makes a big circle. And it'll tell you that if you go, you know, this way it takes this much time or this way it takes this much time. So on the overland map, it doesn't show that. But if you're anywhere in 10 towns, you could figure out how long it would take you if you're going to the next one. If you decide to like just go off onto the glacier or, you know, maybe go the long way around and try to cut through and bypass something, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. Yeah, I just looked at the overland map. There's no scale. There's no hexes. So why include distance? So, but anyway, it just, it just did, didn't really mesh with me. So, but that aside, the introduction also includes obviously some backgrounds and some secrets that we're going to get to. But the thing that you wanted to talk about, Michael, is it includes two new intro adventures to kind of kick off your campaign here. So this this falls into my this is a weird adventure thesis. So you start off with the Ten Towns. And if you are familiar with the the novels, the Icewind Dale trilogy, you probably already know a lot about them. I've, I've read those books one time a long time ago. I wasn't a huge fan. I'm, I'm the person that doesn't think Dritz is the coolest thing ever. So I don't have a strong connection to the Ten Towns going into it. But the book does a really good job of, of giving you each Ten Town has its own section where you learn a lot about it. And each of the Ten Towns has its own adventure that you can get what you know like a quest that you can be given that you can start to do but it starts the adventure with an option of one or one or the other of what it calls the starter adventures that are not necessarily connected to any of the two towns and that's supposed to kind of get you into the game 
And they are wildly different, which is good, but they don't make any sense, which is bad. Yeah, I agree. They don't make they don't make any sense. They they're not connected to any of the ten towns. The ten towns have their own introduction adventures. I would much rather use one of those adventures instead of using one of these. Yeah, like I don't know. I don't really know why they they made this decision. The designers, I mean, one of them is this a very almost cutesy role play focused uh, adventure. And I don't say that with any derogatory because I love role play. That's what I like to do. Where you basically have to try to befriend these little tiny elementals called chewingas. I think as they're called chewingas. And I'm not familiar with them before. It must be a thing in the Icewind Dale. And basically, you find these little. They're almost like pixies or maybe brownies from willow but they're made out of ice and snow and they're they do little mischievous things like throw snowballs and we'll take your stuff but then give it back to you because they're not really evil or there's a murderer (laughs) going around the tin towns a murderer A, a murderer who you are supposed to track down and you can get them arrested or you can kill them. The person who gives you the quest wants them killed. If you just have them arrested, they don't give you any reward. So the adventure is telling you <laughs> you're supposed to fight this person. This person has 75 hit points. I love and it. Can, and can one-shot just about any first-level character that you come upon. So there was a lot of chatter on the Twitterverse about this particular encounter. Now, I think what I read when I read this adventure is this isn't something that you're just going to do. It's an adventure that's going to take a little while because you basically have to follow this person. You know, you either, unless you just randomly pick a town to go to that they're in, there's a good chance they're not there. So even though it's your starting quest, I don't think this is something you're supposed to start first. I think this will be done as you're doing other things. And there's a really good chance that you're already going to be second or third level before you get to the climax battle, you know, you're going to find the murdered victims. You're going to do some research. You're going to go to multiple towns. You're going to start to put together what they are actually doing because there is a story behind who they are killing and why they are killing them. So to me, just reading through it, I'm like, oh, okay, this, even though this is quote unquote the starter quest, I don't think you're supposed to do this before you do any of the others. It's just the first thing you encounter. But it's weird because the the Chewinga one is very much, here's the adventure, complete it in this town, and you're done. And this other one feels like this is something that will be sprinkled throughout everything else you're doing for the first several sessions. Because if you just tell your players, go fight this guy, and you allow them to go right after them, it's he's going to kill everybody. It's going to be a TPK. Almost guaranteed. Not guaranteed because roles are roles, but... If you play with any sense of strategy at all as the DM, easily you can take out a group of four first-level characters with this. So I don't think that was the intention. I just think the book doesn't make it super clear what the intention was. And they call it the starter adventure, which just makes everything seem confusing. Yeah, they don't present it that way at all. Even in the adventure flowchart, you do this starting adventure, and then you move on to the next stuff. So the cold-hearted killer thing, though... I love it so much because this guy is so edgy, all right? He's got a cool form-fitting vest. This He's a murderer, all right? He's got these ice-cold eyes, and he's got an ice longsword. Also, he regenerates hit points. This is like Tom's glorious NPC because my players, I create this super cool NPC, and they can't kill him because they shoot him, and they're like, oh, look. And then I'm like, yeah, I heal, and then they're mad at me. So um, it's real. Um, it's definitely it is hard though. 
I will agree with it that. It is hard. So, and again, we're going to we're going to jump around a little bit. I apologize for that, but this this is for me is necessity. Yes. One of the things that you find out is it's been 2 years since uh the Frost Maiden has started this nightly spell which keeps Icewind Dale in perpetual dusk and dark. So, some of the people of the Ten Towns have decided to try to appease her in multiple ways. And there's three different ways that these each of the Ten Towns has little... In, in its write-up, it tells you which one they do. Mm-hmm. One of them is they offer food. One of them, they offer heat. And this means that basically one day each month, they don't use any sort of external heat. And they just suffer through the cold. Uh, the food, I, I believe that's the one where they give an offering. The third is human sacrifice. Doesn't make sense at all. One day each month, they hold a lottery, and whoever loses the lottery is killed. Not directly, but they're basically stripped of all their possessions and thrown into the wilderness to die of exposure. So immediately, some of these towns are evil, in my mind. And they deserve everything that happens to them, and I don't want my characters to help them at all because they are evil people and they are sacrificing innocence it's so funny but there's rumors that some people are cheating the lottery because of course they are so the killer that you start tracking as your starting quest is actually killing the cheaters who are people who deserve to die so so help him don't fight him. Join his cause and and kill more people that are cheating the system because this makes no sense whatsoever. You're playing a heroic game of D&D and right off the bat, you're stopping a guy who's cheating death by causing other people to die. I I was flabbergasted that this was included. It, it, literally, maybe I'm just being a, a pearl clutcher here. Like, oh my, I got the Vavas. But I was immediately like, I don't want to help any of these 10 towns that are human sacrificing. Yeah. Screw them all, let them die. Yeah. I do want to, this is a good time to talk about too, is with the human sacrifice stuff, this book is, uh, this book has elements of it that are extremely dark. Like human sacrifice, there is elements of cannibalism in this as well. All right. The problem with that, I love, I love dark games. I do. But the problem with this is that this is, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, which for the most part has been sold as a PG-13 style game. And the art in this book, and then also the a lot of the adventures don't are not in line with this form of darkness. So when you do get to these portions like human sacrifice, or now you are forced to eat another living being with sentience, it feels extremely disjointed. And a lot of this adventure, it's there's a lot of really good stuff, but I'm not sure it all necessarily fits together cohesively. And I think a lot of this, this is a point that I keep I keep making, and I will continue to beat my drum. That I think that uh, I think that they're have they have too many writers on these books, and this is my just my opinion that um, Descent to Avernus did the same thing, where you have a list of 15 writers, which makes sense from a structural standpoint. You can hand somebody off, like hey, write this portion, you write this portion, just like somebody's doing programming, and then at the end you bring it together. But with that said, then what you have is a overall narrative that just feels off. And I will still say that the the D and D adventures that only have one or two writers, such as Curse of Strahd or Waterdeep Dragon Heist, those are some of the best adventures because they, they just feel very cohesive and like an actual adventure. 
I will say, because I feel like I've been pretty negative so far, because there are some things that just, just don't make sense to me. I like a lot of this book. And I actually can see myself running this adventure for my kids. Yes. But in pieces and parts, mm-hmm. like each of the 10 towns have its own quest. I really like it gives them two or three different NPCs, two or three different locations. You, you know, you can travel around to whichever one that you want. Each one has stuff that's happening. I really like that aspect quite a lot, but some of the parts just don't make sense. So they just don't fit together. Again, as a DM, I'm going to mix and match and do things anyways. Even if this was the best adventure ever written. I'm still going to take it and make it my own. Yeah. So there's parts of this book I will steal whole cloth, and there are other parts I will ignore whole cloth. Yeah, I will say this. I definitely also plan on I'm running a I'm running a fifth edition campaign for a group of relatively newer players. We're running through the we're running through the actual the Dragon of Icebear Peak right now, and I do plan on jumping right over into this book afterwards. So I mean that does say something that I do plan on using it. And the Ten Towns portion where we are right now is, I think, extremely good. And it includes, and we'll talk about these, the each of the 10 towns includes a small adventure. It includes some NPCs, a shop, a bar, an inn, something to interact with. So, but Michael, do you want to talk about your, what, was there one of these 10 towns that really stuck out to you? Yeah. And then, then this, this is something we've done before. Rather than going through all 10 of these, Tom and I both pick one yeah. we're going to cover. In the next section, there's a bunch of, there's like 10 more or 10 or 12 different adventures uh, that you can do. We each picked one of those as well to kind of highlight, to give you an example of what they would be. But before I do that, I just want to circle back around. I actually do really like the idea of the hunting down the murderer starter quest. I think that's how I would probably introduce a group into this game because it gives them a reason to travel around because as you're trying to investigate these various murders, you have to travel to different 10 towns. Each time you travel, you meet these NPCs, you get these locations, and you can start to get these other quests you know, that happen in each town. And in the process of uncovering the truth behind this person you're trying to murder, you can do some of these other quests, level up and make it a level appropriate encounter. I actually think that's great. I just don't think the book explains that very well. Uh, so for me, the, there, there are 10 towns uh, and there's a page 17. It, it gives you a little chart. Uh, there's Bremen, Bryn Shandar, Caradenival, Caraconic, Dugan's Hole, East Haven, Goodmead, Lonelywood, Targos, and Termalane. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I'm not looking at the pronunciation guide, so whatever. And each of those has a, a quest that you can get. So the one that I'm going to talk about is Care Koenig, which is the fourth one. And uh, one of the things that I think is really cool, actually, too, is each of the ten towns gets a, gets a write-up. And each of them has like a crest that that they show you. And then they also describe like where it comes from, what it means, like the iconography of it. And it feels very sort of like Game of Thrones to me, where you have all these different houses and they have their own symbols. And there's, if you read the books more than the show, it talks about where these come from and what they mean. So Karakonis is pretty much a fishing village, which fishing is, plays a large part in all these towns. And, um, each of the town has like a overview that tells you how friendly this town will be to outsiders, what kind of services and what level of comfort you can expect. It tells you what, which quest is available for Karakonig. It is the unseen. Gives you population. Tells you who the leader is, if there is one. Uh, how much militia forces they could muster up, because this will actually become very important later. Uh, it gives the held heraldry behind their image and what it means. Uh, what their sacrifice is. So in Karakonig, it's food. 
so they are giving food to the wilderness rather than a, I don't know, a person, and any of their rivals, so because I guess there's some infighting between the different ten towns. So we get some locations. This is a tavern called Hook, Line, and Sinker. Gives you the proprietor, kind of why that name is what it is. Uh, gives you some people to interact if you decide to go there. This one also has Frozen Far Expeditions, which is a place you might want to go if you decide to go further out, which you will at some point in the adventure. You can get guides. You can get uh, you know sled dogs, sleds, clothing, that kind of good stuff. Uh, then there's a, an inn called the Northern Light, and this is what is connected to this adventure called the Unseen. And basically, as Tom alluded at the beginning, there are some uh, Drugar, as I would pronounce them. These are the dark dwarves from the deep. And they, now that this place is almost perpetual night, they can kind of come out a lot easier because they don't have the sunlight to deal with. One of their natural abilities is to turn invisible. And these dwarves are looking for Shardolin, which is that crystal infused with demonic magic that uh, is being made trying to turn into a, a dragon, which will feature heavily in the adventure later. So basically these invisible dwarves are walking around town looking for this Shardolin stuff, and they are stealing things at random. And they've recently stolen this magical lantern that used to hang over the Northern Light. And that's the adventure that you get pulled into, is that there's these items that have gone missing. No one can see anything. Every now and then they see dwarven tracks, but no one ever sees anything because it's invisible dwarves. But there's snow, so there's tracks. And they ask you to try to track down the dwarves. Uh, the thing I liked about this adventure, uh, this location more than anything, is the leader, Trovis, is a dragonborn... Uh, a white dragonborn, so they have cold immunity, who's a drunkard who goes out every night to try to track down these thieves, ends up passed out in a snowdrift, and then wakes up the next day, doesn't remember anything that he tried to do. And I just think this could be a really fun roleplay encounter as Trovis basically jumps out of a snowdrift, you know, have at ye, a mace matey, and, you know, blurry eyed with a mug of ale in one hand frozen and a dagger in the other who wants to be helpful, but just isn't as I think that could be fun. And they, they come back later in some of the other adventures and further down the, down in the adventure. If you end up following the tracks, there's actually, and this is pretty common for all the 10 towns. There's a map with like a dungeon crawl. There's a, a Durgar outpost that you can explore. You can have some combat. There's some, you know, secret passages to find. There's some of the plot developments where you find out that the Drugar are working for this other person, I think there's two different, uh, there's uh, like Xandar Sunblight, who's like the lead Drugar, and he has two sons, and each son is leading an encampment of these Drugar into different places looking for more Shondalin. So you can start to uncover that there's a bigger story here. At the same time, you get to do some dungeon exploring, fight some stuff, take some loot, that kind of good stuff. So I really like that one. That was, out of all of them, I think that was my favorite. It's not my favorite of the adventure but it's my favorite location because of torvis and you get to start to get some plot elements in this one. i think it's an interesting choice because it really is not a this is another thing the 10 towns in the icewind dale section not a lot of it ties into the main plot all right but this is one of the points that does all right so i, I do think it's important to actually have your players here to kind of introduce them to these dark dwarves so Mine, I pick the Lonely Wood. The reason I pick the Lonely Wood is because it is the it's the most dangerous of the Ten Towns. Not because it is full of murderers and thieves, but a lot of the towns aren't have murderers and thieves in it. But this is the most remote town. 
this is where the worst of the worst go to hide. It's actually in some woods. It's on a lake. It's very quiet. There's not a lot of people there. And it's not like everybody's going around murdering each other. Everybody's just kind of letting each other do their own thing. But what I think is really interesting about this is because they say that this is like the worst of the worst, but their sacrifice that they do is actually just food. They won't sacrifice other humans in the town because these people actually I recognize that they need everybody to survive. So it, to me, it's the more nuanced town here. It's just everybody here is terrible and evil, but they all recognize that their humanity and shared survival is far more important than any of their own motivations. And the other thing I really like about this is the adventure, I feel like, gives you the most opportunity to actually explore the wilderness. Because what you're trying to do is there's this weird white moose that is killing loggers in the areas. And you have to go out into these woods and track it down. So this is going to give your your underused rangers a great chance to really showcase their skills. Like if you have a ranger or a druid in your party, this adventure is absolutely fantastic. You get to go to a weird elven tomb with a moon dial. It's like a sundial before the moon. So even Warlocks, it's very Eldritch Tree, and this is the weird stuff that I was really hoping to get out of this book. And so this is where it is. And it doesn't show up a whole lot, as weird as I would like it to be, but it really is. And the Lonely Wood is just, I just, I, I really find it interesting. It's it's kind of, it's my cup of tea. It's very dark. It's angsty. It's a little bit edgy. It's great. And I also, I do really like that one as well, because there's a lot of puzzle elements to that one where my quote-unquote adventure has to do more with, you know, you can sneak into this compound, you're fighting dwarves that can turn invisible, but it's very much a combat. Yeah. Yours has combat, but there's also several puzzle elements to figure out, which I really like. Yeah, exactly. You're not just trying to kill things. You're trying to figure out that these creatures are actually awakened beasts by this by this druid. It's very cool. Yeah, which actually is another through line. There are several like I think five or six different awakened beasts that you could interact with, maybe even more than that, which is is cool, but it's also kind of weird the way the way it does and doesn't always connect to other stories. But yeah, that's something you're going to come across multiple times are these awakened beasts that are just, you know, you're walking along, all of a sudden there's a polar bear talking to you. It's like, hey, how you doing? Going to eat you now. Or what you doing? Just want to hang out. Uh, it, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. I kind of liked it, but it's also kind of weird. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. So 10 towns off. I really did. I enjoyed this section a whole lot. Um, yeah. it, but uh, the second chapter and chapter one and two take up a majority of this book. And yes. I will say this to the second chapter is the Icewind Dale portion. This is where you're going to actually get some quests that aren't in the 10 towns and start to see the different locations throughout the Icewind Dale. I love this section because it's very modular. You get a handful of quests, and they, right at the beginning, they, here's the different quests. Here's rumors that go with these quests. You don't need to do any of them if you don't want to. The only purpose of these, that these serve, is that they are meant to introduce elements of the Icewind Dale, and also to get your characters to 7th level. All right. So you think about it. This is a level 1 through 11 adventure. But the actual adventure doesn't start until you're level seven. So just to kind of that, that, just to put that in perspective, a majority of this book is not going to be spent going after our rail. It's going to be spent in the Icewind Dale and in the Ten Towns. Yes, uh, and 
basically like it gives you advice, but pretty much every couple quests you go up a level. Yes. Like it'll tell you, you know, like the first chapter you're gonna go one to four, second chapter is like five and six, maybe seven, and then three and beyond you go from seven to ten, seven to eleven. Yeah. So I did the quick count. There's thirteen locations in the chapter two Icewind Dell section. Each of them has uh, a quest or you know some sort of adventure tied to it, NPCs that you can meet, adventures that you can have. And much like the first chapter, Tom and I both chose one that we were going to highlight to kind of serve as an example of what you might experience. So since I went first last time, Tom, do you mind to go ahead and cover yours first this time? So the one that I picked was the Dark Duchess, all right? The Dark Duchess is a ship that many years ago was captained by Captain Rudolph Blue Moon. He was a... He was a pirate who was in the Icewind Dale searching for riches, and his vessel was basically all Shackleton expedition stuck in the ice, all right? And everyone kind of died, all right? Or they ate each other in order to survive, all right? So, but what this actual adventure um, is doing, obviously, it's a boat. I'm a big fan of anything that is on the water. and also, it is a great adventure that introduces character secrets. So, um, this is an element to this book where there are these lists of secrets. And this was this, me- we'll call it a mechanic, was introduced in Baldur's Gate, where you can have a, your character can have a, a secret, which is something that the GM and player can use to kind of introduce role playing opportunities or even new adventures. So, what this one is, is that your secret is that you're a pirate cannibal, all right? So, at one point, you actually served on the Dark Duchess. So, you participated in the cannibalism, but you survived, all right? So, you are going back to the Dark Duchess. So, it's a really cool opportunity. Like, you know that there was some treasure on board the ship, and you're now going to go back. But the other players don't know that you were actually part of this ship. And I love stuff like that, where it's this really cool thing between the GM and a player, and then the player can slowly parse that stuff out to the other players. Um, so it's just, it's really cool. This is a really cool dark adventure. So I, I, I just dug it a lot. Uh, to touch more on the character secrets, uh, there's uh, some handouts in the back that you can actually cut out or photocopy and cut those out so that you can like deal them out like cards or have them draw. I'm sure if we count them, there's a way to roll a die to determine which ones you have. Uh, the book suggests that you can use none of them. Uh, every character can have one or every character can have more than one. The more that you use, the more likely you're going to get some interesting role-playing situations together. Uh, some of them are doppelganger. So one of the PCs might secretly be a doppelganger. Yeah. And if this is comes to light, then there's a good chance that the people of the Ten Towns, not necessarily the other PCs, but the people of Ten Towns won't want them around and will try to push them out and you know get rid of them. There's one that you are a child. Uh, I think it's a child of the midwinter. Basically, you were blessed by Oriel, and you are kind of immune to cold effects, which is like the best one to get. Yeah. But it's a it's supposed to introduce that maybe you're a conflicted, that maybe you don't want Oriel to stop doing what she's doing because you're kind of into it. Uh, there's one that you have a slot tag, tadpole inside of you, and at some point during the adventure, it's going to burst through your chest and kill you. Oh. But hopefully it'll be interesting when it does. I would. I really want to play this, and I want a player to pick that, knowing that at 
any moment their character can die and just really just accept that in that they would really role play it bursting out of their chest like knowing that hey i'm gonna get be able to create a new character soon so i want this slot host in my body yeah and the book gives you a couple places where they say you know if one of your characters has the slot tadpole secret this might be an opportune moment for it to burst but you can do it however you want. I, I think, like you, I think I'd probably tie it to some sort of random roll. Yeah. Like every every day they roll a D20 and then they hit a one, that's when it comes out. I, I mean, there's a part of me that wants it to be dramatic, but I also don't want to get to the end of the adventure and it never happens. Uh, but but those are, they're interesting. But what, is, again, falls into the Michael confusion of what is this adventure trying to do? Some of them are completely benign and others are instant death. If you, at some point, your character dies, which I guess makes sense in a way because they're supposed to be secrets. They can't all be super cool and edgy and they can't all be nothing. But if you're doing it randomly, you could get a party that has all the in- non-interesting ones. Yeah. I don't know. The, the other thing about these adventures too is that they're each only two or three pages. And each adventure includes a map and a piece of art. And I will say this, the art in this book is probably the best art that I've ever seen in a fifth edition book. There isn't any repeated art, all right? I, we, I went through this, and I, every single time I've talked about a 5th edition book, the ones that we've reviewed, I have made a point of saying, oh, look, here's more recycled art. There's no recycled art in this book. And Chris Perkins has a afterword at the back of the book where he actually thanks Kate Irwin, who was the art director, and about how much of a stellar job she did. She did fantastic because the art here is very... It really does evoke a sense of dread and cold. The art feels cold, and I love it. There's gorgeous full-color maps throughout this book. So uh, we got to give them got to give them props where it's due. Uh, so the adventure location from the second, second chapter that I chose is Carlo Cock. Um, sure, I pronounced that you wrong. You did. <laughs> this is a goblin prison fort. Uh, again, and, and one of the things I do like about this adventure too is the way they try to tie things together because it's complex. So at the beginning, it gives you a couple different ways that they may have already your your players, I mean, may have already heard about this place or be interested. Uh, there's been some goblin uh, envoys that have been sent to one of the ten towns and is currently under arrest, but they're saying like we're here to you know to negotiate a, a peace treaty. So they may have already heard a little bit about this, but but maybe they go into it blind as well just by falling into it, but. Long story short, there is a gnome wizard who was part of a party of adventurers who were ambushed by goblins, and they survived an avalanche and were buried, and the goblins didn't realize they were there. The goblins took all the other members of this adventuring party back to their fort at the time, killed and and ate them. This gnome followed after and started feeling sorry for the goblins. Didn't care much for the adventuring party, so it was totally cool when they all got eaten. And used some, like, leftover remnants from their adventuring gear, fashioned a disguise, which they um, sort of fortified with illusionary magic, because they're a gnome, and pretends to be a goblin. Early on in this charade, they were uh, given a, a bone to gnaw on, and when they were trying to pretend to be eating it, the mechanical part of the mask malfunctioned and started to just grind endlessly and that's how they got their name it's yarbnock which apparently is goblin for ever gnawing yeah so basically the jaw just goes all the time they have now 
become the Goblin Chieftain through subterfuge and sounds like assassination. But they're kind of tired of it. They're basically, they're over it. And I like the idea that there's this, like, I don't, there's no way for the players to ever see this coming. Like, they go into this goblin fort expecting to be dealing with goblins. They're going to meet with this goblin chieftain. And the adventure gives you two options. And you can always make up your own. But basically, the, the, the adventure designers are saying, you can decide as the DM, is Yarbnock ready to get out of there? And just wants to get out because he's he's afraid that the goblins are about to see through his disguise. They're they're tired of all the things he's been doing, trying to make their life better, but actually making it harder. And it comes it turns into like a combat sort of mission because the again the way the adventure is written is if if you take him with you, the other goblins are going to assume that you're kidnapping their chieftain and fight you, or he may see this as an opportunity to try to solidify his place in the world and negotiate a true treaty through you with the Ten Towns and make them like an official part of the Ten Towns communities and start like trading negotiations and relationships. So it can be a very combat-focused game. It can be a very role-play-focused encounter. It's kind of funny in a darkly way that this guy just totally didn't care about his friends getting eaten. He's been pretending to be a goblin for this long. But he's kind of tired and he's worried he's about to be found out. And very Michael-y, it probably would be both. I would probably make this a very role-play heavy situation and then have it turn into a combat situation at the end so you get the best of both worlds. But to me, this just stuck out to me as sort of like a funny situation, and I liked that. It's, it's interesting because your adventure, the one that you picked, is so much different than mine. And I think that's the strength here is chapters one and two of this book, which is more than half of the book, which is, it's, it's weird because chapter, chapter four is only eight pages long. All right. They're so good. And if you want to run something in the snow, I would say, and you're doing fifth edition based on chapters one and two alone, ignore the entire main campaign plot here. Chapters one and two to me are well worth having this book they're just so good it's so unique i mean it was hard for me to pick one of these quests i mean there's a prison tower there's a really weird eldritch wizard's laboratory that was from an ancient race that fell into the snow and is now an upside down dungeon which includes a simulacrum of someone you saw burned to death in an earlier adventure oh but you don't know that at the time yeah it's really i I, these icewind dale quests are all extremely strong and i didn't read one that i was like oh this is lame they're all really good Uh, and throw back to the prisoner if you are someone who's read a lot of the lore apparently that one ties into the there's a prisoner in the prison who is a character from one of the other books that is still alive. And so it's, it's a, if you're a big Icewind Dale fan, you probably might recognize that prisoner. And it's just like a kind of a cool little connection throwback, but it doesn't matter to the story if you know, but just uh, it's a connection. Okay. Yeah. And now we're going to get into the, yes, we're like 45 minutes into this. And now we're going to finally talk about the campaign because there's not much to it. All right. Yeah. So the first opening chapter here is called Sunblight and it's literally, it is so, there's no lead up to it. It's just, hey, these people have this fortress, these dark dwarfs, and you need to go stop them. Well, there is a little bit of connection because you've got multiple tin towns that have the invisible dwarf stealing the Shardron, or Shard- Shardolin. Yeah, that's that's true. It just, it doesn't, it, to me, it doesn't kick off of anything. It's the opening flavor text is just, in, in parentheses, evil enemies walk among us. And it's just a speaker 
from any town, it doesn't matter, is going to give you this quest. No, I, I, it's more like if you go there, like, oh, this is what they were doing, rather than we have discovered what they're doing and now we're going there. there it's not going to be intentional progression. It's more like, oh, I see the connections now. Yeah, and so, and Mike, you can hop in wherever you want here, because chapters three and four, to me, there's not a whole lot here, because you can't even stop the dark dwarves. So that's what I wanted to talk about. You ha- So we'll, we'll he- hold on one second. So you can't stop the dark dwarfs. And then it goes right into chapter four, where their dragon is wrecking havoc all across the 10 towns. And now you have to stop their dragon. So it doesn't make, and it's only chapter four is only like eight pages. It's just like fight a dragon. So, but, but there's some parts about this. I really like, okay. So it includes a uh, magically enhanced red dragon heart that is firing this forge where they are building this Shardle and Dragon. That's cool and epic. I really like that. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the ways you can shut this down. Not the dragon, but the you can shut the fort down or this fortress by killing the heart so that they can't heal the dragon. That's cool. As a DM, I absolutely have things like this in my game where no matter what the players do, they can't stop X from happening. I want them to think they can, but they really can't. Mm-hmm. Because this is like a set piece. This Shardle and Dragon is a set piece encounter. And it's it's designed that no matter what they do, they can't stop it from starting. But they do have then agency on how they react to it. So I'm fine with that. But it, I'm not a fan of what they can do once they can do something either. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it, I feel conflicted because there's part of me that thinks this is walking that line of, of agency stealing. But I know I've done very similar things myself. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I did it last night in our Ghost of Saltmarsh stream where they have a bird and I just turned the bird to stone because I didn't want them flying away. <laughs> you know, you got to do what you got to do sometimes to right. feed that plot out. But it leads into chapter four, which is you're going to fight the dragon. That's literally all it is. It tells, gives you a little flight path of where the dragon is going. And your goal is to stop this dragon or you are going to. The whole 10 towns is going to be destroyed. And as we could talk about the dragon now, since it's right here. Uh, but one of the monsters that is included, and there's a lot of monsters included in this book, which is good, is the Shardland dragon. I don't think it's impossible for your players to kill this without any NPC help. I think that this time they're around level 7, maybe 8. They can kill this thing so easily, but the problem with this dragon that is gonna they're gonna get annoyed real quickly is that this thing is resistant to so much stuff. It's I mean it's a metal dragon. It's resistant to radiant, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing. That's not magical. It's immune to cold and poison. You can't charm it. You can't make it frightened. You can't paralyze it. You can't petrify it. You can't poison it. You can't do a lot of stuff to it. So it's gonna take a while. It's gonna be a slog. So I don't know. What did you think about this dragon overall, Michael? Well, and just and just to clarify, one of the things you can find in the fortress is the fight, the flight plan yes. of how this dragon is going to approach the Ten Towns. And the, when it starts, basically it's a triggered event. You show up to the fortress, the dragon leaves. So even if you decide to leave right then and, and bypass the fortress and just go fight the dragon, you're chasing it. And in this chapter, it tells you which town it goes to first, how long it stays there, because in some cases it stays for hours uh, and will basically just to completely decimate the town. How many people it will kill of the population we've already established in the earlier chapters are there. And then where it goes next, how long it takes it to get there, how long it will stay there. 
so on and so forth. So there's a bit of a puzzle aspect to the players that they can't travel as fast as it can. So if they just go to where it was, they're almost always going to be behind it until it gets to one of those places where it sticks around for eight hours and they can fight it. So that it's a choice the players are going to have to make. Do we go to this particular town knowing that it's going to be able to devastate these other three, but that's the best place we have to fight it? Because if they go to a town to fight it and they don't kill it, it's going to fly to the next one. It moves faster than they do. They're, going to, they're always going to be behind. So it's very possible that if they choose poorly, that this dragon is just going to wipe out 90% of the 10 towns, which if you've spent this much time here, as our players will, that could be devastating. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's what they're going for, but it feels kind of weird to me. Again, I'm going to use that word a lot. It just feels weird to me. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the book, it will tell you if it takes any damage because it doesn't heal itself. It, it can potentially heal if you don't destroy the furnace at the fortress. But, like, if there's enough of a militia there, they'll say, okay, now it's got five points less. Now it's got ten points less. So if you wait till the very last town, it'll be weaker than it is earlier. But the way the book is also, the adventure is structured that whoever survives the ten-town attack of the dragon goes to the last town. So when it comes to the last town, it's full of refugees, and the body count will be almost astronomically higher. And I, I don't I don't mean to like undersell this. Ninety percent of the ten towns could be wiped out by this dragon if the players don't take care of it early and quickly. Having said that, this could be a difficult fight. And for those people who like those types of things, it could be a fun encounter. Because you got this dragon that's got breath weapon that can recharge at certain times. It's immune to a lot of things, so you're gonna have to have a lot of different strategies. You can't really count on a lot of NPC help unless you've established those relationships. So I think it's cool. I like it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's an encounter that you're going to want to run cinematically. And I'm glad they don't include a battle map here. You need to, this would be a fun encounter. You just got to ignore all movement and you just let players describe what they do and really lean into, really lean into it. And I think this will be a really fun encounter. But after that, after the dragon is dead, all of a sudden a wizard approaches you and is like, all right, hey, I need some help. Do you want to end this unending winter? Sure. All right. Welcome to chapter five. All right. This is where we actually get to go and confront Oriel. All right. It's not to necessarily defeat her, but this wizard, she wants something so that she can open up a glacier in order to get to some lost ancient magical city where there's basically the arcane brotherhood is trying to get a bunch of powerful objects. All right. This is one of my my problems with this, and this is something it would be easy to fix, and I would I would do this. But this is where you meet this wizard. In, in my version of this game, this wizard is going to be around the entire time. Yeah, for sure. You're going to run into her multiple times, and she's going to be too busy for you. She doesn't need you. She's doing her other thing. And it's not until you prove yourself that she then says, "Oh, maybe you are the people that I need." But I don't I don't like it all. This idea that now that you've you know, defeated this dragon, suddenly this wizard shows up, you know, like Gandalf with a quest, and now this next step starts. It just seems really, really weird to me. I don't like that at all. Yeah, the what's so absolutely, I agree completely. I like that. This is a cool NPC. It's it's a very interesting NPC. She's really, she's helpful to the players, and she's not spiteful. She's not trying to screw them over, which is really cool. All right. The yeah. but this this area, Ariel, Ariel's Island, all right. 
you get the island. It looks like a snowflake, you know, because iconography and everything. All right, I dig it. All right, and it's you get this all sorts of weird locations, and you get her basically her castle, Grayskull Palace. All right, the palace structure here, this dungeon. It's a small dungeon; it's not big. Um, you have a few main floors, and then you have the very top where the the Frost Maiden sits, and then you have her dungeon, her her vault. All right, this is where this. What is this magical artifact called again? Oh, I don't remember the name. It's yeah, it's something. Um, yeah. It's basically the rhyme of the Frost Maiden. You say it, and then the glacier opens up. So you go into here, and the key thing with this, which is so funny, is that you go to the vault. There's some tests that you have to complete, which are interesting. I feel really weird about those. Two. Yeah. The But what's so funny is after you've done the test, and you can talk about the test, Michael, but after you've done the test, now you can go get this object, and let's say you've been trying to sneak around and not see Ariel the entire time. And then all of a sudden, as soon as you get all the the tests, you go into the vault, and she senses it, and she appears. And now you gotta fight her. So it doesn't matter. You're gonna fight her. Your players are probably gonna kill her because it doesn't say that she runs away. She doesn't run away. She's gonna keep on fighting. And she's a deity, so she'll just spawn again and how it wants her followers resurrect her or whatever. So it's right. So you you have to fight her three yep. times. She has three forms. She will fight basically to the death. But if she dies, she will be reborn. I think it says in two years. But that's still enough to stop the exactly. her spell. So you still will free the ten, the ten towns in Icewind Dale. But though interestingly, it does actually give an alternate way to defeat her without fighting her. Yes, it does. She has a rock R O C. These are the giant birds. That's what she flies on each night as she casts her spell. If you kill her rock, she can't cast her spell. So the rhyme of the Frost Maiden, like the, the nightly spell, will stop. But it also says that she will eventually get another one. So it's only postponing things for a couple of years. But it also says she'll be resurrected in two years. So no matter what you do, you're only stopping so, it for a couple of years. But, yeah. Just, it seems, it's so like, when they said that, they say it. It's not, they're just like, yeah, you, the rock dies, she's done. It's like... Okay, all right. I guess that's a. I guess that's a thing. I know a hundred percent what my players are gonna do. All right. It's just. It's so. It's. I mean. It's. It's cool. But the whole thing is that I. My problem with this chapter is it feels so anticlimactic. All right. For this is the the frost maiden, and it's really there's not much to it. That's my opinion. Yeah. It the the test portion doesn't work for me. I don't like it's it. It's convoluted. I, I would, it's weird. It's it's convoluted. It's weird. I would like it better if it was like a puzzle that you yeah. had. To, but basically, you have four different tests. There's a test of cruelty, the test of endurance, the test of isolation, and the test of preservation. And in each case, you are teleported somewhere in the Icewind Dale area. And there's a situation in front of you that you have to interact with. For the test of cruelty, you have to kill innocent people yep. or allow them to be killed. You don't have to actually kill them yourself, but you can't save them or you fail. For the test of endurance, you just have to survive out in the wilderness, which we've already said isn't that difficult in 5e and is really that interesting. For the test of isolation, you have to basically, same thing, you have to survive. But rather than traveling, you just have to sit around long enough and it's considered that you passed. In the test of preservation, there's an innocent person and you have to save them. You have to protect them from this other thing that's trying to kill them. None of these are very engaging. None of them are very, I, I think, I don't think any of them do what, they're, what they think they're doing, which I think is supposed to show like poignancy. 
and make you go, oh, there's a cycle to life and we're all a part of it. And this, you know, the spell has disrupted the natural. No, none of this worked for me. I absolutely hate this idea of these tests. It does not work for me at all. Yeah, because I think it has to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons, at the end of the day, its core element is you you kill stuff. I mean, that's kind of, you're going out there, you're heroes, you're fighting the bad guy. And it just doesn't, because it just, that doesn't really click with this particular system. My only, my other problem with this section is that when this first came out, there was a lot of controversy over the fact that they broke down Ariel, who's this powerful female figure, into three basically distilled forms of what they were calling femininity, which was basically a old crone, a brittle maiden, and then a womb, all right? And I think we need to talk about this because the designers were like, when there was some pushback here, they were like, well, this is kind of weird and a little bit messed up. And they said that, oh, well, hold on. It's more, she's more nuanced than that. Somebody can explain it to me, but from what I've read, she's not that much more nuanced than that. So I'm sad to say. I have nothing to add to that. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just, it was, this is the, which is so bad because there is so much of this book that I really like, but the titled antagonist is just the least interesting portion of the book. But it's not the end. It's not the climax. We still have more to do. So you have two things that you have to get on her island besides taking care of her. There's the uh, codicil of the white, I believe. Yeah, that's what I was trying to think about. Yeah. And then there's um, basically this orb that is a professor that the NPC wizard who shows up. So those two things together are what will let you get to the, the buried necropolis city. You have to have both of those things. Yeah, the, the Ad Astron or whatever it's called, it's a magic item that you can find in a different portion that can temporarily abate the uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, but it's almost guaranteed to kill at least one of your characters when you try to turn it on, which is an interesting design. Yeah, choice. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So we, we defeated Oral three times, Oriel three times. We've got the Codicil of the White. We've got the, the orb that tells us the professor inside, which makes me think of... Um, What's that superhero, Booster Gold, the little... Booster Gold and Skeeves. Not Skeeves. Skeet. Yeah. Skeet. Yeah, Skeet. Skeet. Makes me think of Skeet. Basically, it's a it's a disembodied intellect inside of an orb that knows things. Uh, those lead you to the end, which is... Uh, chapter six and seven. You go, you like dungeons? Then I tell you what, we got dungeons in dungeons, all right? Dungeons for days. Ice dungeons for Ice days. dungeons. So if you don't like dungeons... You can totally not do this entire last two chapters of this adventure and still feel satisfied. All right, this is what Michael was saying. These feel definitely tacked on. That said, though, I'm personally not a fan of dungeons, so I'm not the great. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna knock it for being a dungeon because a lot of people like dungeons. I mean, it's in the actual name of the game. It's Dungeons and Dragons. So I think it is cool that they're... And we have both of those in this adventure. You do. There are dungeons and there are dragons. So flipping through these dungeons, though, what I do like about them is that they're both weird. These are very classical. I've told so many people, when I first got into Dungeons and Dragons, I picked up a copy of Temple of Elemental Evil, the real classic, because I'm like, guys, let's play this and be ironic. And we started playing it, and it was the weirdest thing ever, because in one room, there's a T-Rex, and then it's just, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm getting similar vibes here, and I kind of like it. It's You don't know what you're going to 
find in either of these dungeons. But the way it's structured is you first go into what they call the Caves of Hunger, which is a giant ice cave. You have to make your way through these caves before you can get to this necropolis, this 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 ancient city where it gets really yeah, weird. Is the the Netherese, the, which again is it's it's lore that I'm not familiar with. Apparently, they're super powerful wizards from long ago that had floating cities, yeah. and this one crashed into the ice. Yeah, Forgotten Realms people are gonna love it. All right, all right, they they will. Um, but I will say this: I love the Caves of Hunger for one particular reason. There is a null vampire. All right, this is perfect if you want to do some scary stuff because this vampire is tracking the players the entire time. This is like this is like Gollum following the party through the mines of Moria. It's really cool. It's really creepy. They give you cool ways to use this null vampire, and I thought that was really cool. So as much as I don't like dungeons, I do like this portion where you can really scare the players and try to evoke stuff out of them. So yeah, and and by opening up the caves of hunger. That's what frees the Null Vampire. So if they don't deal with it, it's going to go and finish killing off the 10 towns. So now you've got a 30 days of night situation uh, yeah. where you've got this Null Vampire in the 10 towns having a field day because it's still mostly dark there. It's not under the rhyme anymore, but it's still, it's, you know, basically not as much sunset. So lots of vampire activities can abound. Yeah. And so the Caves of Hunger then leads us into the Necropolis. And what the Necropolis is, it's a large, it's a huge city. And they don't give you a tradition. I like this. They don't give you a traditional map. They just basically show you the city and they show you the different portions. And they give you a full two page spread with no text. It's absolutely gorgeous. I think it's the first time they've done something like this. And this city, the main thing here is that long ago, the city was flying in the sky. And this is a whole Icarus situation where they went way too they got involved with the magic way too much and their city crashed and it was so hot that it buried itself into the glacier and it got frozen over immediately and everybody was trapped and everybody went all these wizards went crazy and they all became nothings so it's very there's a lot of weird stuff the city is scary it's very alien and there's a lot of cool stuff and a lot of powerful magical magical stuff here um, so I don't know. Um, there's a some living. There's a living blade. There's crazy crystals. Um, I, I guess it's cool. It it's definitely interesting, and the idea of like a alien spacecraft that's you know in the ice. There's a lot of popular media that uses that, and in particular, I've mentioned many times. I'm a fan of the movie The Thing with Kurt Russell. Absolutely love that movie, and a lot of my role playing DMing style can be taken from that movie. This adventure really leans heavily into that in certain aspects, and and there's actually some actual like callbacks. There's NPCs in this adventure that are named after characters from the movie, and some of the scenery, the um, the imagery that is evoked is very reminiscent of that movie. So, in the in spoilers, the movie thing has to do with an alien spacecraft that was buried under the ice in the Arctic. Um, but but the the ending of this module is super weird, and we have to talk about it. All right, it. give it to me, Michael. Okay, so there are a couple different ways that things can happen, because I think there's a Demulich also in yes, the city. Yes, there is. It, yep. the few, there's a Demulich, uh, which is one of the few things that's still alive with the actual in intelligence. So there's a couple ways that the adventure can end. One of them is the players can summon a Tarrasque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Now you have a Tarrasque, and it reminds me, did you ever watch the, the show The Good Place? 
No, I didn't. Okay, it's one of my all-time favorite shows. It's completely amazing. There's a character named Jason who's a lovable idiot, and his his problem-solving technique is to throw a Molotov cocktail. And he always says, no matter what my problem, I throw a Molotov cocktail, and boom, I now have another problem. <laughs> and this is exactly what this feels like to me. It's like, oh, God, there's a Demolich and a vampire in this necropolis. What if, bear with me here, what if we summon a Tarrasque? And now, boom, you have a different problem. The problem is that you have a Tarrasque. There's also a version of this module that ends with you going back in time 10,000 or so years, I think. And it basically just sort of says, now the players are in the past and they can maybe change the future. But there's absolutely no guidance, which I'm fine with. I love time traveling games. But the fact that it's included and it's just like a paragraph that says, now they're in the past. I, I, it says they, there's a there's like you're in the past. They have a new world, and this is where that ops that obelisk the obelisk is what takes them back. Yes, it makes me feel like they should have added like 20 more pages and talked about that a little bit because it's just so open ended. It's almost like why did you even include it? Again, I don't dislike it. It just feels really weird to me. And and overall, I get a weird vibe from this module because I, I guess you know kind of worth the end here. I like a whole lot of it. I like a whole lot about it, but it doesn't feel to me like there was one design mind behind it mm, all. Yep. I think, again, you mentioned the fact there's a whole bunch of writers. I'm glad all those people got jobs. I'm glad all those people got a chance to write a module. I think that's amazing. But I feel like there should have been a, a stronger guiding through line yeah. that's mm-hmm. missing. And I like this adventure. I like it a lot. It's going to keep it from getting the top mark for me because it doesn't feel like a cohesive whole. Yeah, I will definitely, I absolutely love the, the first half of this book and I, but this stuff with the Charlene dragon and then Ariel, I just kind of like, they're just kind of meh to me. I actually, like I said, I'm not a fan of dungeons, but these two dungeons actually kind of work for me because they're weird there's lots of cool stuff in them so i actually kind of like those last two dungeons and i almost feel when i run this i'm literally going to just skip those middle well, chapters okay well here here's my version of this you don't have the rhyme of the frost maiden you just have the ten towns as a location everything else is almost the same you have to do very small tweaks they explore the Ten Towns. They explore the wider uh, Icewind Dale. They have all these cool adventures. They meet all these cool NPCs. You still have the Duragar who are trying to build the Shardland Dragon, but you let the PCs get there before the dragon is completed. So then you have the epic battle with the newly awakened dragon inside the fortress where it's contained. So you still have the battle, or you could have them defeat it before if you want to give them that agency. You skip them fighting Oriel, and then you just go to the Necropolis dungeons, and you you just basically take her out of it. And I think it's a much better adventure, and very cool. I mean, I'm definitely going to probably run this, and I'm definitely going to change a ton of stuff um just to streamline it and make it feel more cohesive the final section of this book it includes several uh appendixes the biggest one primarily being the monsters and we've talked about the shardland dragon and the uh and ariel but there's a lot of monsters here and i like that the other thing i really like about the monster section is that they include a lot of stuff like they include rabbits and goats and fish and just some random just kind of monsters that would be not monsters these are animals that are out there so i thought that was kind of 
cool to include them. Yeah. Uh, a couple things we didn't touch on quickly. There's an awakened dinosaur in one of the lakes. Oh, uh, yeah. There's an awakened whale with a magical bubble that you can ride and have undersea exploration, which I think is super cool. There's Goliaths with griffins. And you can ride the griffins if you negotiate a peace between the two warring Goliath clans. And again, there's so much of this we didn't touch on because we can't in an hour. There's a lot of stuff. And like I said, all of that stuff for the most part is included in the first two chapters. And it's they're really good. Lots of cool, unique yeah. stuff. So. so anything else you want to say before we move into our rating and wrap things up? No, I think we got it. I think we're ready for some ratings. All right, then let's do our ratings. Okay. All right. So ratings. All right. So the first thing we like to talk about is the fluff. I'll go ahead and go first. It's weird because the overall story I could care less for, but the world itself was weird enough for me where I I liked it. I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a B because I'm going to steal stuff from it. But the fluff, especially the stuff at the end with the crazy spaceship looking thingy that stuff didn't work for me what works for me in this book is the the whole idea of the cold being weird and mysterious and so that's what i really like about the that's the fluff that i like here okay i i debated between b plus and a minus i think i'm gonna go a minus okay because i actually do like a lot of the the story i just don't like the main story but the main story is only in like one chapter uh, you know, I already talked about, I, I think if I run this, I'm going to get rid of the, the Maiden completely. I'm going to still have the Duragar and the Shardlin Dragon. I'm going to have the Necropolis and the Caves of Hunger. I think all of that with a little, a few little tweaks in the, you know, in the beginning to make things flow better. And I think this will be an awesome adventure to run if you're going to run a 5e game. Yep. All right. So some mechanical bits. All right. I'll just go straight up. Um, this is a C for me. Um, maybe I'm a C minus because... The exploration stuff is just, it just doesn't work. It feels tacked on. It feels like it drags the game down and it did not work for me at all. It doesn't feel, none of the rules, there's no synchronicity between any of those rules. Each one does its own thing. And then also, I mean, there's a weird thing with the Goliath where they have this game where instead of actually just rolling for an actual skill check, to get over a DC, you roll and then you add your number with another player, and it just goes against a lot of the the principal design of Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. So it just the mechanics, the new mechanics that they introduce just don't work for me here. Yeah, I think they were trying to do a skill challenge like from Fourth Edition, but I don't like the way they implemented it. I would do it where the difference between what you rolled and your DC would be calculated so if the dc is 10 and you roll a 12 that's two and i would add those numbers up rather than just whatever you rolled on your die it just doesn't feel i don't know it didn't work for me either i, I don't yeah. yeah uh so i'm gonna give the crunch a c plus a little bit higher than okay. you a lot of the same reason i don't think a lot of the mechanics actually work i do like the secrets i do like um some of the new magic items in there so the monsters are included i i think that's worthy of uh, something so c plus for me for some uh, the fiddly bits the, the environmental stuff doesn't work but i think some of the other parts are kind of cool i'm glad they're in there yeah all right so art and layout this is gonna get i'm gonna give it an a the art is so good here and also honestly i feel like the layout here 
is really good as well as far as how they have piecemealed out the information, especially chapter two, how they give you the, how they break down the quests and they've made them so modular. It is so easy for me to take this adventure and to change it for how I want to do it. And I don't feel like I, if I take out chapter four or five completely, I don't feel like I've necessarily ruined anything. It's so easy to, to change this around. Um, so the layout is great how they've presented the material. And then the art is just, I mean, I've, there's no repeat art. None of it is bad. It's all great. It's all fantastic. So I got to give it an A here. All right. I'm going to give it an A as well. Uh, again, you've said most of it. It's all new art. It all evokes the setting very well. It's very cool. Uh, I like that quite a lot. The, the layout works really well. I would have actually liked to have seen a little bit more, but this may be asking for, you know, what's, what's reasonable. I would have liked to have like some kind of like flow chart where you have all the different various connecting threads between the, the quests. And I probably would make something along those lines myself if I were to run this uh, to help keep myself straight work, especially because I want to add in a few things and foreshadow things a little bit better. But there were a couple of times where I'm like, I could use a flow, not even like not a flow chart like they have. So maybe I'm saying the wrong, yeah. like the thing where you have like all the circles and lines and colored arrows going back and yeah. forth. Definitely could it could have used one of those. Might be too much to ask for, but I would have loved one of those. So it's not too much to ask for because they included it in Storm Giant's Thunder. All right. So they've done it in previous adventures. I before. actually haven't so, never looked at that book, so I don't know. That's that's one of the ones there that we go. it's a good one. Okay, though. I'll take a look at that. So overall then. So overall you gave it a, a C minus, an A, and, and a, a B. B. So where are we falling overall? I gotta give it I'm gonna give it like a I'm gonna give it a low B, all right? because it's definitely i was i mean i have been very vocal i was not a fan of descent to avernus and i was very skeptical about how this was going to how this adventure was going to be just because they had a bunch of writers on it again but there is so much good stuff in this book and there's definitely a lot of bad stuff in this book but i definitely think the good outweighs the bad here and i definitely think that the Ten Towns and the Icewind Dale portions especially are just so strong. I definitely would. I am glad that I have this book. All right. It's not like there's been a few recent releases where it, I will never open them again. I will be opening this book again. It's it's there's. So that's why I give it a B. It's not the greatest, um, but it's not. The bad stuff doesn't overshadow the good. Gotcha. So, uh, so I'm going to give it an A minus. Again, a lot of what you already said, the stuff that's good is really good, and the stuff that's bad is very easy to ignore. Yes. It's not so in-depth that you're going to have to change a lot of stuff that you like to make it make sense when you leave out stuff you don't. You can easily just not include it. It won't change much, and then you can use all the good stuff to your heart's desire. It would have been better if it all worked that well, but I think what works works really well, and I... I know I say this a lot. I, I, I want to run a thousand games, but I do play D and D with my kids on occasion. We've been getting through going through the uh, Ice Spire Peaks adventure, which they're really liking. I might jump them into this with some heavy modifications, but just the, the modularity of that first section, where I can put them in a town that's so got a couple NPCs and a couple locations. They have a quest, and then give them some choices to where they go. I think that would be a great way to continue to introduce them to the game at their age, for sure. So um, I think we both overall, I think we like it. Definitely say that if you, especially if you're an Icewind Dale fan, you got to pick the book up. 
um, if you haven't already. Um, even and then if you're a, it's it's a, I'd say it's it's relatively strong adventure. So there awesome. you go. Well, Tom, thank you as always, and to anyone listening. I hope you appreciated our uh, our review. We will be continuing to do more of these. We had a couple more lined up. But if you have a product you would like us to review, whether it's one you yourself have made and want to send us a copy or just something you'd like to hear us give a take on, please let me know. I can't guarantee anything, but we are looking for more things to review. So with that, we will sign off by saying, as always, if you're having fun. You're doing it right. Doing it right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.